We're going to look at one of the most famous episodes in the life of Moses. This is where God calls him into the ministry, calls him to be the one through whom God is going to bring deliverance to his people who are in slavery. And really the whole passage, the whole passage is about God revealing who he is. It's important to see that because um, a lot of people misunderstand what the Old Testament is really about. I, uh, I, you know, I have occasion from time to time to look at textbooks that they use at Belmont. And there's one typical common textbook used for um, an understanding of the Bible class. You guys have probably read it. And I, right at the beginning it says that the Bible is a record of what God did in history. Yeah, so far so good. At least they believe that he did something in history. And then it goes on and says, and what man or men thought about it. In other words, what you have in the Bible is a particular generation's reflections upon the things that God did. God actually did them, but the reflections and the pondering what these things mean, well, that was that particular generation's understanding. We're free to ponder and come up with our own understandings. What I want you to understand is you can believe that about the Bible, but just understand that's not what the Bible says it is. And that's not what uh, the book of Exodus in particular is wanting to emphasize. Uh, what the Bible says it is, is a record of what God has done, certainly. But it's God's self-revelation about what he's done and what it means. It's very different. God claims the prerogative to interpret what he's done. There's a, a great old hymn by William Cooper Um, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And it's got this line that says, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God is his own interpreter. So when we come to the Bible, what we have here, at least what the Bible claims to be, is God's self-revelation. And you see that in this passage here, all over the place. If God only wanted to do stuff, well, then he certainly could have sent an army or you know, exercised the power of his hand and delivered Israel from Egypt, from bondage. But what goes all through this passage is God is not interested in merely delivering his people. He wants them to understand who he is. This passage is filled with God revealing who he is, both in the way he delivers, the way he works, but also in the things that he says. So let's look at this passage Um, we're actually going to pick up, the chapter headings aren't really in the right place sometimes. Um, They're not inspired, like chapter 1, chapter 2, that's not in the Hebrew, the Greek text. Um, And in this case, we need to pick up at the very end of Exodus chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, Genesis and then Exodus, we're in chapter 2. We're going to pick up the last couple verses from chapter 2, beginning at verse 23, and then we're going to read Exodus chapter 3, which isn't a real long chapter. Here's Here's what God says. During these many days... The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, meaning God, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, God meaning, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. And what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go to a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go out empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." I know it's a long passage, but it's an important, important story. Let me pray, and then we will dig into what this passage has to teach us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and a God who acts. And we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that you would send your spirit to take away our heart of stones and give us a heart of flesh 
that we may love you and worship you and serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Here's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at what this passage teaches us about the way God works and about who God is. Pretty simple, right? Let's dive right in. Um, The first thing that's interesting is these verses from the very end of chapter 2. If you were here last week, you know this part of the story. Israel has been suffering for a long time. And as the story of Moses, the book of Exodus, opens, you find that Israel is in Egypt. There was a Pharaoh who was kindly disposed to them because he knew and loved Joseph. Joseph has died. And after Joseph died, a Pharaoh came to the throne who knew not Joseph, and the Israelites were put into slavery. Okay? Then Moses is brought miraculously onto the scene, and we talked about this last week. And it seems that he has all kinds of special protection and special plan that God has for him. And yet, even with all of that promise, he ends up being a murderer, fleeing to the desert. And where we pick up the story tonight, he's been there for 40 years. Okay? So when when you look at this story, the first thing we want to see here is that God works in his time. Not the time that we may like. Not the time that the Israelites would like. The first thing you see about who God is, what he reveals about himself here, is he works in his time. And there's two things to note here. It seems that God has forgotten them. It seemed when the story of chapter 2 started that God was ready to finally act. He'd raised up Moses. He worked it out miraculously so that this one, Moses, was raised by his own family so he would identify with the Hebrews and understand who he was. But yet he was also raised in the house of Pharaoh. He had unprecedented access and privilege and training. And yet all of that seems to have gone to waste because now he's out herding somebody else's flock in the desert, in Midian, right? Marginalized, a has-been hero. And it seems that God has forgotten. Moses is 80 years old now. He had a promising beginning, but it all came to naught. And it doesn't seem like God has a backup plan. But God is working on his own timetable. The second thing about God working his time that's worth noting here is the situation seems hopeless. Look at how it starts there in verse 23. It says, during these many days, the king of Egypt died. Now, that could possibly be a hopeful thing. But the verse goes on, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. In other words, the Pharaoh who started oppressing them has died, but it doesn't matter. Even with regime change, the policy hasn't changed, and Israel is still in bondage. Now, the reason I say that that seems hopeless is, humanly speaking, the best hope that Israel would have for being set free from the world's greatest superpower is if a new pharaoh would come to the throne and and institute a new policy. But a new pharaoh has come, and still Israel lies in bondage. They have no hope. They have no hope from Egyptian kings. It's not going to help. But the second thing we see about the way God works, it's so amazing in this passage, is this this phrase here in verse 24 and verse 25. Four words that it says about God. And God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. 
Now, that's a remarkable statement because what it means is, even though the king of Egypt has come to the throne and he has no intention of letting them be free, what God's word is saying, what God is declaring here, is Israel will not be defined by their slavery, by their circumstances. What matters is that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God loves, knows them. This is what matters. This is what defines their reality and defines their future. And what's fascinating is a deliberate contest, contrast with chapter 2, verse 12. Because if you remember, the story says that Moses went out and looked upon the Israelites and their burden. And then he tried to do something about it. Do you remember? He, put an, he killed an Egyptian. And it was a disaster. And the next day, he tries to break up a fight between two Hebrews and it's obvious that they know about him murdering the Egyptian, and he has to flee to the desert. So here you have Moses sees, and it's a disaster. But God sees, and that changes everything, right? But you know what's interesting here is it talks about God hearing their groaning and remembering his covenant. It's almost like, where was God the previous 80 years? They've been groaning for a long time. Why now? And here I think you you touch upon this mystery of God's sovereignty. It's his time. Very clearly, this is God's time. He's doing things according to his timetable. And yet also, it says that he's acting in response to their crying out. Now, that's a great mystery. It's the mystery of how God's sovereignty functions with our prayers. And rather than get hung up on it, this passage encourages us to prayer. Because God hears and God remembers, and God sees, and God knows, and God acts like he's going to. Don't get hung up on figuring how this fits in with God's sovereignty. The passage encourages you to pray, that God acts in response to prayer, even though we know that God has already planned the timetable. Do you know why we know that? Because way back to Abraham, Back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham how long Israel would be in bondage in Egypt. 430 years, he said. So God did not adjust his timetable according to his prayers. And yet, nonetheless, the prayers in this passage matter. God hears and God acts. I don't know how how to solve that conundrum for us. But I know that it's important that we believe both of those things, that prayer matters and that God is sovereign over all things. We also see a wonderful picture of God's intimate care here in in these four phrases. And it's this, this word knows. It's a strange thing. The the NIV, um, I think, like adds some words and says God knows about their afflictions. And that may be what it's talking about. But in the Hebrew, it just says God knows. And it uses a particular Hebrew word that's the word used for intimate relationship. It's the word used, for instance, when it says that Adam knew Eve and she conceived a child. It's a a very strong, personable, intimate word. And it's remarkable that you find it here, particularly because as you read later in the passage, God is the God who cries from the burning bush, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. You have this picture of God's majesty, of God's unapproachable holiness, at the same time juxtaposed with this picture of God 
who knows in such a way that it's tantamount to the way a husband knows his wife. This is really actually the heart and soul of worship. To understand both of those two things and to understand both of them together at the same time. That the God who says, take off your shoes, this is holy ground, knows you and cares about you in the most intimate way possible. And if you get rid of either one of those, those, those truths, you end up diminishing your understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with God. If you think, well, of course he knows me. Why wouldn't he want to know me? I'm great to know. Uh, you really miss the point. If you want to say, well, you know, God is so holy, I could never actually look at him, let alone speak to him, let alone tell him my problems, even my petty little concerns. No, God knows intimately and cares intimately. What a powerful set of phrases we have here. He hears, he remembers his covenant, he sees, and he knows. And then he begins to act. And look at how he starts. This is fascinating. He begins by showing something, and this is often how he begins his pursuit of us. It's often how he begins his work in our lives. He begins by showing something that doesn't fit the paradigm, that doesn't fit our preconceived ideas, something intriguing, something that draws you in because you have to get a closer look, something like a bush that's burning and yet it's not consumed. And that's, of course, really remarkable. I know you can burn wet wood and it may not be consumed right away, but we're talking about a desert, right? And it's a a bush in a desert that's burning and isn't being consumed, right? So it's obviously, it doesn't fit any categories that Moses has, okay? Um, and, and, And what it does is it draws him in. It intrigues him. And this is, I think, a very important lesson for us to understand. Maybe you're here and you're wondering, what, how do I go about developing a relationship with God? How do I, how do I begin to, to walk with him and get to know him? Or, or how is it that my friends who I wish knew him, how, how are things going to begin? This is where it begins. With something that doesn't fit your paradigm that God uses to draw you deeper in. And he uses all kinds of things. All kinds of things. The thing here. Is, um, is a burning bush, right? Something that doesn't fit his scientific pattern. He doesn't have any way to explain this with what he knows about reality. But there are all kinds of other things. One of my favorite examples is a guy named Sheldon Van Auken. Sheldon Van Auken and his wife um, got to be friends with C.S. Lewis. Then his wife actually um, gets very ill, and I won't tell you the whole story of the book, but um, C.S. Lewis is, is friends with them through this illness and um, they write a book called Severe Mercy. Sheldon Van Auken writes this book, A Severe Mercy. But what is interesting about this, about this book is the way Sheldon, who is a very, um, very strong atheist, has no interest in Christianity whatsoever, but when he and his wife move to Oxford, they begin to get to be friends with a group of Christians like they've never met before. And I love this. This is the thing. What, you need to, what I'm using this for is to show you sometimes the thing that doesn't fit your paradigm is Christians who aren't like all the other Christians you've ever met. Now, listen, listen to what Van Auken says here. He writes uh, about these first Christians that he met in Oxford. These were our first friends, close friends. More to the point, perhaps, all five, and there's five of them in this group, were keen, deeply committed Christians But we liked them so much that we forgave them for it. (laughs) We began, hardly knowing we were doing it, to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. Our fundamental assumption 
which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were necessarily stuffy, hidebound, or stupid, people to keep one's distance from. We had kept our distance so successfully, indeed, that we didn't know anything about Christians. Now that assumption soundlessly collapsed. The sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype. And thenceforward, a reference in a book or a conversation to someone's being a Christian called up an entirely new image. Moreover, the astonishing fact sank home. Our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. Now, he's not, he's not converted at this point. You have to read the book if you want to find out more about where the story goes. But this was the intriguing thing that's starting to draw him in. I, I will tell you, most of the people that you rub shoulders with at Belmont have been around Christians. They've been around Christian churches. But many of them don't know what Christianity is and don't think they have any interest in it. The question is, can we be the kind of Christians that give them pause and intrigue them enough to say, maybe I need a closer look at what's going on? You know, I always thought Christians were judgmental, but she loves me, even though she knows me. And she's a Christian, Never met anybody like that. He's intelligent. He actually thinks about things. He doesn't just spout off and react to whatever a professor says. He actually thinks about things and interacts very intelligently. And he's a Christian. Hmm. Right? There's all kinds. Here's the thing. Here's the challenge. God wants you to be this intriguing thing. Do you know why I know that? Because Peter actually says in one of his letters, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within you, which presupposes that you should be living in such a way that people are intrigued enough to ask you, where, where are you coming from? Right? So I leave it at that. Uh, but but I, I think it's fascinating. Well, I, I won't leave it at that because there's one other, one other illustration that I want to tell you about. Sometimes, sometimes the thing that intrigues people and draws them in and shatters sort of their paradigm is, is, is a tragedy. Sometimes what God uses to wake people up to get their intention to intrigue them is, the, is life falling apart, honestly. Things don't work. I see, it seemed like I had everything figured out. I had everything planned. And then this illness came and everything that I thought I figured out goes out the window. I need to think differently about things. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes things happen. I remember meeting a friend of mine in college and asking her how she got converted. And I'll never forget this because the first person ever told me this. She said, I really, you know, nothing bad happened in my life. Now I came to find out later that she actually had a lot of tragedy in her life. But she said, I never, I didn't have anything bad. Things were just going so well for me. I felt like there must be a reason and there must be somebody that I needed to thank. And, uh, you know, I thought sometimes God can intrigue us that way too. The other, the other uh, I guess it was last semester, Wendy and I went to this concert at the Ryman. The Swell Season was playing, you know, the folks that, are in, that were in once. Didn't you guys go to that? No, it was awesome. Boy, it was awesome. But what was really fascinating to me, there was one point, like this guy, you know, he plays in the frames, right? And he's been working hard for years. What do you say, something like 20 years this band has been together and they've been touring. They've played America a couple times, but just dive kind of clubs, 
right? And then he's, and he's talking about how you work so hard to be in a band and you work at your craft and you make records and you do this stuff for 20 years. He says, and then you basically, a friend of yours asks you to write a couple songs for a movie. Next thing you know, he asks if you want to be in the movie. Next thing you know, you're like playing the Ryman. And like your career is completely like taken off and it wasn't the thing that you've been pouring all your energy into. It was this other little thing over here that was just kind of a throwaway. And that's the thing that's like, brought all this blessing into your life. And he didn't use the word blessing, but you could tell, like, he's, he's just getting up, he's just kind of rambling on about this. You can tell that he doesn't have a category for this. But what he wants to say is, I've been blessed. He doesn't have a category for that. He's an Irishman, so all he can say is, it's effing brilliant, right? <laughs> but it's fascinating. It made me think of this quote, and I, I tracked it down today. Um, th- this poet, Rossetti, used to say this, the worst moment for the atheist is when he's really thankful and has nobody to thank. The worst moment for the atheist is when he's really thankful and he has no one to thank. Right? I don't know what it is, how God wants to draw you in or how God wants to draw in your friends. But I do know this. If you're a Christian here, the Puritans had this wonderful image. They said that if you're a Christian, that the way God wants to use you is in, in other people sort of coming to spiritual life is, is like a spiritual midwife. A spiritual midwife. You're not the one who causes the baby to be born, but hopefully you can be there, and if the cord's wrapped around the neck, you can help out. Um, if there's a problem, maybe you can give some direction, some guidance, some encouragement. I like that image. God is the one who does these intriguing things that sort of stop people and cause them to want to come in and take a closer look. And, and I think that that's really helpful when you think about how is it, what am I supposed to do? Like so many of us get trained, if you grew up in a Christian church, you were probably trained that the way you share the gospel with your friends is by taking them through a little pamphlet and proclaiming this and, you know, do you get this, 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 and this, and this? Yes, good. Do you want to pray? Okay, good. Let's close the deal, right? And, and yet you would never do that with anybody that you actually know and are friends with, right? Because it's so deeply impersonal. And it so doesn't seem to actually take them seriously and care about what their concerns are. What I'm telling you is understanding the way God works here in Exodus really helps you understand what might my role be. In coming alongside people and say, wow, that's kind of intriguing, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? Man, things seem to be going so well for you. What do you do with that? <laughs> if everything is a matter of time plus chance plus matter, why are you so thankful? Why, why are you glad that you're in love? There, there's lots of little dots that we can connect, so I throw that out to you. Um, I want to jump into another thing, though, here. And this is we see who he is by what he reveals about himself. Who is God in this passage? What do we learn about this? First is, he's the God who speaks. I said something about this already. I won't belabor the point. But God does not just leave Moses to gaze at the burning bush and go, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. No, he speaks to him. And says, here's who I am, and here's what I'm going to do. The, 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 real, the real action is not the burning bush, which seems so amazing and miraculous. The real action is God saying, I care about my people, and I'm going to do something about it. He's the God who speaks. Christianity, in other words, is revealed because God is the one who speaks. It's not discovered. Moses doesn't go out looking for God. God gets his attention in the ordinary things of life. God is also the burning fire. Now, what is this image supposed to communicate to us? The image of fire in the Bible is always an image for holiness. 
holiness, and particularly holiness as it comes into contact with sin and all the ways that human beings fall short of who God made us to be. Um, Sinners, like Moses, right? Moses is a flawed guy. He's committed murder, and he's hiding out in the desert, okay? He's He's not a good guy. He's not a hero. He's not the hero of this passage in any way. And, and, and what he has here is, is he sees this, this burning bush, and it, it affects him. It, 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 he has to do something about it. He has to take off his shoes, right? And this biblical symbol of fire and holiness, it goes all the way through the book of Exodus. I want you to understand, it, as far as like the central storyline of the book of Exodus, this is the beginning, the burning bush. The ending, do you know what the ending is? Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. But do you remember what that mountain is like? It's full of fire. Fire is at the beginning, fire is at the end. God's holiness from first to last. But here's what's amazing, is that even with this fire, even with this fire, the bush doesn't burn. Now what is that supposed to communicate? Here's what I think it's saying. It's saying this, God is the fire that needs no fuel because he contains everything he needs within himself. And the reason I think that is because he reveals his name, it's the same kind of idea. I am that I am. I am the all-sufficient, self-sufficient one. I'm the, I'm the fire that doesn't need fuel to burn. I'm not dependent upon anything, anybody for anything. Who I am is, is, is all contained within me. I'm the all-sufficient one. But you know what's amazing? He's also the all-merciful one. Because here's what's amazing. Here, he says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And yet, he pursues, he pursues a murderer. How is it that the holy one who says, you gotta, you got to take off your shoes to even come close to me, at the same time pursues a murderer? That's a paradox, isn't it? God is the burning fire who wants to rescue his people from bondage and use a murderer, a deeply flawed man who seems like a, well, he is, he's a has-been. His time has come and gone. But God is also the angel of the Lord. What is this image? What is this this phrase? You read this, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, in various places in the Old Testament. It's a very intriguing image because at times the angel of the Lord is really associated or even equated with God. You see it here, right? In verse 2, you see that the, um, the angel comes, and then in verse 4, you see God is the one who's there. So the, in this passage, the angel is equated with God. And yet as you continue to look at this image of the angel of the Lord in Scripture, you'll find that sometimes it's equated with God. The angel of the Lord is the Lord, obviously. Other times... It's clearly distinguished from God. So what are we to make of this? What do we make of this? Somebody who is God and yet isn't God the Father? Well, this is why most Bible scholars think that what you have here is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself. He's the only one in the Bible who is there, who is God, and yet can be distinguished from God the Father. That's who we have here. 
Jesus is the one who is here. The angel of the Lord who is God and yet is not God the Father. We see this as well when you look at Exodus 33. Look at this. I put this passage in your outline here. In Exodus 33, I think this this idea of who the angel is in the book of Exodus is strengthened. God says this to Moses, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now, of course, when you actually read the stories, it's God who goes before them in the ark, right? But here he's saying it's the angel. So there's the equation, right? Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. So this is, that's great, you're a stiff-necked people. So here's what he's saying, the only way that I, God, can, can live with, close to, a stiff-necked people is by the angel of the Lord, who is God himself. Do you see this picture? Do you see what God is teaching us here? Jesus is the only one who is God who can actually be in the presence of sinners and even have sinners be comfortable in his presence. Tax collectors and prostitutes that love to hang out with him. Jesus is the, is the, is the fulfillment of what's being shown to Israel here that God can be both with you and still be holy in the presence of the angel of the Lord. God is teaching them that here. Alec Moyer, the Bible commentator, puts it this way. There is only one other in the Bible who is both identical and yet distinct from the Lord. One who, without abandoning the full essence of prerogatives of deity or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners. Jesus is the only one who is both God and yet closer than a brother to us, right? Who are sinners, who are weak people. And then we get to this name. He is I am that I am. This is the name that God gives to Moses. What does that mean? I am that I am. It's a mysterious name, isn't it? I I think at the the basic level, what God is saying here is I'm free and sovereign to do what I want. I'm not derivative from anybody. I'm not dependent upon anybody. I am that I am. This is similar construction in the Hebrew to what he's going to later say when he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. This is God's way of saying, my reasons are my own. I do what I do because that's what I do, right? And I don't have to explain it to anybody, and I don't have to convince you to like it. I am that I am. And yet also contained in with that, so you have this declaration of his freedom and his sovereignty, and yet also you have the essence of the covenant. I am your God, and I will be with you. Not just in the past. It's not I was and, and I hope you remember, it's I am. In whatever situation you find yourself, whether you're in bondage, whether you're wandering around in the desert, whether you're in exile in Babylon, I am that I am. I am with you. So again, you have this amazing juxtaposition. I am free and sovereign, and yet I am also with you. I am that I am. I am with you in whatever situation God is saying. And yet, I am not with you, or I am not at your beck and call. I am with you. I am with you. Intimate. Intimate relationship. And yet, I am not God on a leash. 
I am that I am. I am not what you make me. I am not what you want me to be. You know, it's always so fascinating, you know, when, when you talk to somebody and you talk about God and people are, you know, talk, they'll say this phrase always kind of escapes people's lips and I always find it humorous. Well, my God's not like that. My God's not like that. Listen, God could care less what your God is like. He is who he is. I am that I am. Uh, old Bible teacher guy I know, R.C. Sproul, used to say the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like. Because either you need to change or God needs to change. Well, I am that I am doesn't change. He doesn't change, right? He is who he is. He is not God on a leash. He is not God who lives to do our bidding. Now, there's, I, I just want to throw this out to you. This is an intriguing suggestion. I, I, I'm not preaching this, telling you this. I believe this is absolutely the case, but it's very intriguing. Alec Moir in his commentary on Exodus suggests that perhaps... Israel already knew this name, I am that I am, but Moses doesn't yet know this name. Think about it. Moses was raised for the first few years of his life in an Israelite home, but then he's taken off to the palace and he's raised in Egypt. And what Moses says here is, the Israelites are going to ask me your name. If I go back to them and say, I've spoken with you, they're going to ask me your name. What should I tell them? It seems that Moses knows that Israel knows the name, but he doesn't know the name. You see that? Now, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but I do know that the name is very precious and that God um, expects and Moses expects Israel to want to know his name. And so he tells them, I am that I am. Tell them, I am that I am sent you. And also tell them who I've been throughout history. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's fascinating to think about those people and how each one of those names and the stories connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob encourage Moses in different ways. Abraham is the guy to whom God made these promises to the people that Moses is now going to be called to go speak to and help deliver. Um, Isaac and Jacob, well, they're not really great figures. They're, they're kind of scoundrel kind of people. And um, each of them have particular, well, you know, Jacob was the guy who basically was fleeing for his life and should have been killed, and God spoke into his life and delivered him. And, you know, Moses is going to be in a similar situation to some of these guys. But I don't want to get onto that. Here's what I want to talk about, last, last point, is look at who God likes to work with, the inadequate. God chooses to work through the weak who need tons of assurance. So take heart. This God who is the burning fire comes to people like Moses and people like us and says, I want, you, I want to use you. Now, Moses is not the hero of this story, right? As you go through the book of Exodus, it's amazing how insecure Moses is and how many times God has to encourage him over and over and over and over again. But look at how God encourages him because it's really important. We tend to not encourage people very well. We tend to flatter people. Moses says to God, I'm inadequate for this task. I can't do this. God does not say, Moses, don't be so hard on yourself. You're a great guy. You've got all kinds of abilities and potentials that just haven't been explored. You just need a good education and some training, a little experience, and you're going to be great. He doesn't say any of that. What he says is, you're right, you're inadequate, but I will be with you. God never, ever challenges 
Moses' self-evaluation. He never does. He doesn't say, oh, come on, you're too hard on yourself. He doesn't say, I'm going to fix you and make you better, and then I'll send you there. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, don't worry, Moses, I'll give you a spirit of courage. No. He says, I'll be with you. He says, Moses, you're right, but you're not seeing the whole picture. You've left something very important out of your calculation. You've looked at this task, and you've thought about yourself. But I'll be with you. But I'll be with you. See that? God, God is the God who, when we say, I can't do it, he doesn't say, oh, sure, you got it in you. No, he says, okay, fair enough, but I will be with you. See, here's the thing. God never calls people to serve him who are up to the task. There isn't anything that God has for you to do that you really are able to do. But here's the the thing. Don't try arguing with God about that. Don't try saying to him, God, I really really can't do this. Because God will say, that's really irrelevant. I knew you couldn't do it. But I will be with you. Don't ever plead with God and say, God, I can have no role in your kingdom. I can't serve you because, gosh, I killed somebody. Or whatever it is you think you did that disqualifies you from serving God. God doesn't care. He say, well, I wasn't using your adequacy and your holiness anyway. I'm the one who's going to do the work. So that's really irrelevant. Don't ever say to him, but I, I'm so shy. I'm so, you know, I, I don't have these gifts or I don't have that gift. I'm not like so-and-so. They just have all these wonderful gifts. God said, I don't care. You serve me. I'll be with you. Right? This is what Jesus says at the very end of his ministry. Go into all, all, the, day, all the earth. I will be with you to the very end of the age. Right? He still does it that way, doesn't he? He says, serve me. I've got a job for you to do. We say, I can't possibly do it. He says, it's all right. I'll be with you. That's enough. It's enough. And he works with people who fail time and time again. You know what's fascinating? Moses goes, he takes God his word. He goes and he makes a mess of it. Things get worse. And he has to come back to God again. And God says, go, I'll be with you again. (laughs) Time and time again. Which means which means that serving God is constantly an exercise in having to go back to him and be encouraged. I love how God brings Moses in, encourages him in the deepest way possible, and then sends him out. And you see that pattern again and again. He brings Moses in, and then he sends him out. And here's what's, what's the last kind of crazy thing I want to tell you about, is what God, is what God tells him. Here's the, here's the thing Moses is supposed to go tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh, look, me and the elders have been meeting with the God of the Hebrews, and here's what he wants to do. Now, in the ancient world, the value of your God was, caught, was totally wrapped up in how powerful you were as a nation. How impressed do you think Pharaoh is by the God of the Hebrews? The Hebrews are his slaves. This is not the way to strike fear into the heart of Pharaoh, to go to him and say, hey, the God of the Hebrews has something to tell you. Right? 
what, what an amazing, what a ridiculous thing to tell Moses to go say to Pharaoh. First thing out of your mouth, tell him the God of the Hebrews has a bone to pick. Ooh, you know. <laughs> oh, wow, you know. Right? And that is the way, Pharaoh. And, and God says, and he's going to react that way. He's not going to be impressed. It's going to take a mighty hand. And then notice what God says. I'm going to lift up my hand. He doesn't say, my mighty, omnipotent, glorious, huge hand. He just says, I'm going to lift up my hand. It's going to take a mighty hand. I'm just going to lift up my hand. And he's going to change. Not only is he going to change, the Egyptian women are going to love us so much, they're going to be throwing their jewelry at us as we leave town. That's pretty, that's pretty remarkable. Pretty audacious promise of God, but he's going he's gonna to keep it. What's going on here? God is not telling Moses something to strike fear into the heart of Pharaoh. God is saying something more important for us tonight, which is I identify with outcasts and slaves, and I'm committed to them. I'm the God of the Hebrews, even when it's not cool to be the God of the Hebrews. Even when it's not impressive to be the God of the Hebrews, I'm the God of the Hebrews. And isn't this what Jesus is all about? Isn't this what the cross is all about? Jesus says, I'm here for these people. I'm committed to these people. This this band of people who've pretty much all left me and have run off and are, you know, cowering in the dark. That's who I'm here for. These people that put me on the cross, these people that said, crucify him, crucify him. That's who I'm identifying with. Yeah, write it above there. King of the Jews. Let it be seen for everyone. I'm the king of the Jews. I'm the one who identifies with the slaves who have no power whatsoever. And you know what's fascinating is the book of Hebrews tells us that if you want to be a Christian, that's where you need to go meet him. Jesus, it says, was crucified outside of the city gate in the place of shame. And he says, let us go meet him there. I don't know what you expect, but if you follow a crucified God, you shouldn't expect to impress people very much. But I do hope that we'll intrigue people. The Christians were intriguing. They were never very impressive, right? They, you remember when there's a story in the book of Acts where they get called in um, to speak to the Jewish leaders, and they're like, how are you guys speaking all this stuff? You're just fishermen. And then somebody says, yeah, but they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They're just fishermen, but they've been with Jesus. So... Don't limit, don't ever limit God by what you can imagine that he could do with you. And don't try to make excuses about you being inadequate. It won't fly, (laughs) right? Because these are the kind of people God delights to work in. These are the kind of people that God used to change the world, right? And he can do it again. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you for your grace. We do thank you that you would privilege us to invite us to be about your work and that you would be with us in that work. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to prove ourselves to you to get on your team. And we don't even have to serve you faithfully to stay on your team. But we thank you, Lord, that you give us the dignity of inviting us to do your work and being with us. We pray, Lord, we pray, Lord, that not that we would be impressive, but we do ask that you would help us to be intriguing because you would help us to believe boldly your word and submit to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.